The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I thank you. I, th I think about the two moments in my life when you spoke and your voice rang into my heart, into my mind, and then into my heart. And the reality of your resurrection set in. And it changed me, it changed me forever. Thank you. Thank you for it. And it is such a, a privilege to now speak of you because of what you have done for me. So thank you. And I pray now that you would continue speaking, that your voice would be clearly heard. That your voice would be clearly heard through my voice. Pray that your voice would be clear and that you would, by your spirit, work in all of our ears to receive your voice in the way that it is intended. For those who are your children, I pray that you would give us rest and that you would just give us a deep enjoyment right now. A deep enjoyment of the, the symphony of life that you play out before us in this scripture that we will read for those that, that don't know you, I pray that you would speak and that you would cause your voice to be heard. I pray that you would cause my own words to be received in the, the ways that they are intended, not to take advantage of this moment because I have the mic and everyone else is sitting here, but just to express what you say in your word from one human being to another. So speak. Speak in my words. Speak now and bless all of us with yourself, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Everyone knows instinctively that our lives turn on whatever wisdom we follow. Everything depends on wisdom. Just the question is, what wisdom? What wisdom do we live by? That's the question of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, which we'll be looking at this morning. John chapter 20. If you're using one of our Bibles from the hallway, that begins on page 528, I think, um, in that Bible. The scene is that Jesus has been crucified. John himself witnessed the sword going into Jesus' side and his death after that. And now, three days later, I'll begin reading from chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they'd laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. John openly states his purpose later on in the chapter in verse 31 that we would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. John is very straightforward. <laughs> he lays out the basis for belief by showing us the evidence of Jesus' resurrection and then the effects, the effects upon the first eyewitnesses of seeing the resurrection. Really simple. If you, if you have an alternative explanation for the resurrection, John is not trying to shut you down here, but he is saying, no matter what one's alternative explanation, my explanation is always going to be the simplest. That people saw Jesus risen from the dead. They saw it, and they were transformed by it. We have their testimony, and we have the ways that it profoundly transformed them. That's my basis for belief. So first, the testimony. 
The first point this morning, the first truth from the passage is this. Jesus' resurrection was a historical event witnessed by many so that we too may see the wisdom of God. Jesus' resurrection was a historical event witnessed by many so that we too may see the wisdom of God. John lines up his witnesses in a proper chain of evidence. First, Joseph of Arimathea in chapter 19, verse 38. Then Nicodemus, verse 39. The two of them wrap up Jesus' body and give him a proper, expensive burial. The testimony tells us Jesus was dead. Dead, dead. Not swooning, not catatonic, not almost dead. Dead, medically, totally dead. But something new is dawning. John gives us a hint of this in the language. Jesus was buried in a new tomb. And Mary Magdalene visits, John says, on the first day of the week. He doesn't say three days later. He says, on the first day of the week. In a garden. In a garden. The first day. Echoes of the first garden and Adam's creation. Now Mary, with John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they had all witnessed the death of Jesus. So Mary is mourning. And she arrives early to the tomb before light to mourn. And seeing that the tomb has been opened, chapter 20, verse 1, she finds Peter and John. John identifies himself here as the one whom Jesus loved. And they race to the tomb. And what thoughts must have quickly raced through their minds? In those days, grave robbing was pretty common. Jesus had been buried with very valuable linen and spices. The first thing a, a robber would have taken, but those were still there. So then I suspect their thoughts then went to Lazarus. Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead and recorded by John in chapter 11. That, that sight of Lazarus exiting the tomb, struggling to walk properly because the burial linens were still wrapped around his body. Whew. Wait a second. The burial linens are here, still wrapped where the body should be. There's no body. Could it be? He is risen, but not like Lazarus. He is risen right through the burial linens. And then there was the face cloth, verse 7, folded neatly to the side as if the previous owner was sending a message, I won't be needing this anymore. They see it. They see it, and then verse 9, something clicks. They understand the scriptures, the Old Testament. They understand that a Messiah would come and that he must, it says, must rise from the dead. Perhaps their thoughts went to the first garden where God promised that he would send an offspring of Eve, an offspring of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and who would deliver the race of Adam from the curse of death forever. And how God worked that out throughout all of the Old Testament. Their thoughts are racing. It's happening here and now. <laughs> Seeing the resurrection changed everything for them. For Peter and John and for us, 
We're, listen, we are not Christians because we have some superior intellect, some superior spiritual insight that we can pick up this fancy leather-bound book and look into it and find spiritual insights in this that no one else can see. No, I mean, for crying out loud, John, the one whom Jesus loved, John, the one closest to Jesus, John, the insider of insiders, didn't get it until he saw the resurrection. We are not Christians because we're smarter than anybody else. We are Christians because this thing happened. Everything depends on this. Everything changes with the resurrection. It means everything. Literally everything. Mary, John, the disciples, they they got to see it. And that is, man, again, whoa. But then Jesus says in verse 29, with with a sideways glance out of the text, towards us. Blessed are those who have not seen these things and yet still believe. He's not saying that our faith is superior to John's or Peter's or Mary's. No, the the whole point is that our faith rests on the fact of this event. We Christians throughout history have relied on their testimony. The stone was rolled away so that they could go in and see and so that we could believe. Relying on their testimony. So either way, regardless, their faith, our faith, it all rests on the fact that this thing happened. It had to happen. It must take place, verse 9, or else the benefits of the cross would all be lost. All would be lost. It would be worthless. Why? Well, at the cross, Jesus died in our place, willingly, Willingly sacrificing himself for us. Satisfying God. God's sacrifice in our place. Taking all the punishment that our sin deserved on himself instead of us as our substitute. Achieving for us total forgiveness. Total. Total forgiveness for those who believe. For those who believe. But who would believe? Who would believe that God would reverse the curse that came at that first tree of life by dying shamefully on this ugly Roman tree, the cross? Who would believe such a thing? What God works like that? Who? What? It makes no sense. The cross would not be robbed of its power, but we would not be able to enjoy its power because we would not see We would not see Jesus for who he is. How does that bring life? A shameful tree of death. Who would believe that? So then in order for us to believe, the resurrection proclaims to you and me that what Jesus did on the cross was real. The resurrection vindicates Jesus to us. That's why the stone was removed so that we could see it. Vindication is a must because Jesus was always saying things, really extreme, absolute things like, I am the way, the truth, 
the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beyond audacious. Whatever we say about Jesus, we just, we, you can't leave it at, he was a good man who lived as an example for us. No, his own words don't let us say that. So then there needed to be some vindication to show us that Jesus was not, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, a nut job lunatic or an evil charlatan who, in the end, got his own just desserts at the hands of an angry mob. You know, that's, that's how the Apostle Paul first saw Jesus when he was still a religious Pharisee, zealot, but all of that changed when he saw in a vision the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus. In the resurrection, in Paul's eyes, Jesus was vindicated. He was no longer crazy or evil, but he wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was Christ, the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior. He saw it. Jesus had to be vindicated so that you and I and Thomas at the end of this chapter could see him for what he is, our Lord and our God. Everything depends on this, on us seeing the truth. The famous uh, scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson once told that great prophet of our age, Stephen Colbert, um, that the great thing about science it's that, is that it's true, whether you believe it or not. And he, you know, he's right, partially. That is true, except that's true about anything that's true. It's true whether you believe it or not. In the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. The resurrection vindicates Jesus' claim that he is the way, the truth, the life. The truth is the truth. The question is, do you believe it? That's the only question. Will you believe it? If not, it's not a great thing. It's a bad thing. Because... Being the Lord, being the resurrected Lord also makes Jesus the judge. And at the end of time, he will certify the choice of all who reject him in this life. And the only possibility then will be eternal separation from him, the life, forever. And that, I want to say that if you're not used to someone standing up and sermonizing, that that's not meant to be a scare tactic on my part to you right now. That's just meant to be truth packaged in, in love from what I'm reading here. Do you see it? Will you believe it? Because for we who, who do believe it, it is a great thing. Because in him we find the, him to be the only wisdom that truly liberates us from our greatest enemies to a life that is most full, most full. 
And this is the second truth of the passage. Jesus' resurrection liberates all who believe to a transformed life most full. Jesus' resurrection liberates all who believe to a transformed life most full. Mary is, however, still understandably enveloped in a cloud of grief and anger. And she, she had watched her teacher Jesus' horrible death on the cross. He's gone. And now the body's gone. She's sad and angry. Then she takes her own look into the tomb. And she sees two angels. They're seating places conveying a truth that she had not yet grasped. The question they ask is a bit of a chide, but it's gentle. The, the word woman here in English sounds kind of harsh, you know, woman. But it's not meant to be that way. In the orig original language, it was actually a brotherly, loving term. I wonder when they asked their question if they kind of glanced down at the, the empty slab. Woman, why are you weeping? <laughs> she turns around. Why doesn't she recognize Jesus? Probably a combination of the dark, it's a dark hour, it's still early, her grief and tears. But also because at a glance, probably she doesn't recognize Jesus. Uh, just three days before, he was at the end of a subsistence life, beaten to an inch of his life, nailed to a Roman cross where he literally poured out his life. Now he is raised in this new body, continuous in some way with that old body, with the scars, but in some way new and strong and glorious, able to move through linen and stone and walls. So, again, to be clear, what are we talking about when we say resurrection? The testimony here is that Jesus was dead, 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 and then came back to life physically. Not a spiritual resurrection, not with a look-alike. The same dead body resurrected and given new glorious life. A miraculous resurrection in space and time. That's what we're talking about. Nothing less. But Mary doesn't see it that way yet. So Jesus, the master teacher, asks her two questions laden with meaning. First, repeating the angel's Pregnant question, woman, dear sister, why are you weeping? The simple answer, because from her perspective, death has taken away her teacher, who was like a perfect brother. Grief and loss, these, these are part of our existence. And, and grief can be so heavy, so consuming, it engulfs us, and it seems that we will never live again. And in some ways, we don't. What's lost is lost. The sweetest moments and relationships and objects in life are so fleeting, so fragile. Sin and death are thieves that steal our life. And grief is the register within us of how awful that loss is. Jesus knows this better than anyone. He's not denying this. He's not papering over it. But if we listen to grief, we hear something else in it. 
we hear this panging longing for unending good, for unbreakable life, for unceasing relationship, to live on. The horror of grief preaches its own sermon that we were not meant for this, that life is not meant to be this way. It's not right. And we're right. It's not. Why are you weeping? Because the loss that death brings is final and it comes to us all. And yet we, we spend so much of our lives, it is so natural, so natural, to pretend that this is not true. But in the end, what's true is true, whether we believe it or not. Money, sex, video games, people, they can distract us from death, but they won't distract death from us. What's true is true. Why are we weeping? Because we're all caught in this awful tension between the reality of death and this sense of eternity in our hearts that we can't quite grasp. But then, everything hinges on who is asking the question. Why are you weeping? Mary thinks it's the gardener, verse 15. And she's more right than she knows. That's the problem. But she doesn't realize that she is speaking to the gardener in this new garden, the new Adam. So the master teacher keeps leading her and us to the wisdom of the ages. Whom are you seeking? I'm seeking my dead Lord. No, no. Whom are you seeking? Again, a gentle chide, but a brotherly one. After all, he wants her and us to see the truth that we would be set free. Liberation comes by thinking about the question, whom are you seeking? So much seeking. It is to be human, is to be seeking, 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 seeking. Every moment of our lives, seeking, seeking, seeking. We never can stop. It's what we do Ever since that break in fellowship with God in the first garden, we've been relentlessly, restlessly churning, seeking, seeking someone, someone who can transcend death, someone who can keep death from having the final word, someone who can transform death from a, from a taunting terrorist into just a dour doorman welcoming us into life. Who can do that? That's what we've been looking for. Whom are you seeking? So much of our lives we spend looking for life and other people only to be brought to grief. It's so natural of us. But people die, people cheat, people leave. Or it's happily ever after. Except for the petty, daily, drip, drip, disappointing griefs. <laughs> Death by a thousand cuts. Yet we keep on seeking. This is the human insanity. We know it won't work, and yet, what else is there to do? Keep on seeking. And we look at the text, and we want, we want to whisper to Mary, 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 look up. <laughs> Just look up. But do we look up? Do we look up? Churchgoer, Christian, whom are you seeking 
What teacher are you looking for? It is, it is so easy to assume the who in life. The only questions are, where do I go? What do I do? When do I need to be there? Or when, oh Lord, when? Or why, oh Lord, why? Natural questions, good questions. But our Lord wisely points us back to the first and most important question. Whom are you seeking? Whom is it? Our very lives turn on the answer to this question. How we need the wisdom, the wisdom that Jesus is our life. How, how incapable, incapable we are of grasping it and how capable he is in his resurrection. How close he is. How close he is and how capable he is and yet how insane we are for not stopping and looking up. How insane we are for seeking our life outside of him, but that's what we do. Look up. Look up. But he is so gracious. <laughs> He's so gracious. It is just... Do you hear him calling you anyway? With all of your mixed motives, with all of, we're all so mixed. Do you hear him calling you anyway? He's so gracious. His sheep hear his voice. Mary hears, and in a moment she understands that the wisdom of God is her teacher. Rabboni, teacher, you are my wisdom. When we look up, we see a teacher who is risen and who is all-powerful. We no longer see an emaciated Savior. We see a Savior who is alive right now, today, this very moment, alive, and who still carries upon himself the scars for our sins, ensuring our internal forgiveness. And yet at the same time, who possesses in himself resurrection life right now for us. Whom are you seeking? What is your wisdom? The wisdom that leads to life is that Jesus is raised from the dead. Are you living in that wisdom? Is he your wisdom for life? There... At this point, because of the resurrection, there are only two ways to live. To live. Really only one, actually. Only one that brings life. By our own wisdom, or by the simple wisdom that our Jesus is raised from the dead. Brother or sister, in your struggle against sin, What's your wisdom? Whom are you seeking? Because you are united now to one who shares, who shares his very resurrection life with you. The resurrection begins a little early for you. Now you may walk in newness of life, his newness of life, Romans 6, because of his resurrection. You're united to that, that life. Whom are you seeking? 
and your shame about your sins and mistakes. Your wisdom is Jesus who folds you into his own vindication, who makes you stand right before God in his own resurrection. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking as you consider your own end? Your wisdom is Jesus who has gone before you through death, who was completely cut off from the sight of God in his death so that you never will be, even in your own death. You are called by name by one who has gone and stored up abundant goodness for you on the other side of your death. Your pleas for mercy God will hear because of Jesus. He makes death your conquered servant, which will bring you to life. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking, brother or sister? Be strong. Take courage. Look up. Look up at our risen teacher who is our wisdom, our life, our Savior, our Lord, our God. Look up. Believe and take courage. Because as we wait for him, we got a mission. We got a mission. Evidently, in verse 17, Mary just immediately just grasps Jesus by the feet, holding on for dear life, not wanting to let go ever. Jesus' words back to her in verse 17, um, they, they are some of the hardest of his to interpret in the New Testament, but it seems best to understand his meaning this way. Mary... I am about to ascend to the Father soon. But, but not, not yet. Not yet. So there's no need to cling to me as if I'm leaving now and you'll never see me again. There's still time. And, and with this time, I want you to declare my resurrection. You've got a mission. It's just, it's just pretty cool. It's just... It's just a picture of Jesus, a picture of God that he honors a woman to be the first person to see him risen from the dead. And for a woman to be his first missionary to proclaim this good news. It's just a cool detail. And the implication for her and for us is listen to the message along the way. Preach it to yourself as you proclaim it. The striking thing in the message is that is, is these personal pronouns. Go tell my brothers, my father is now your father. My God is now your God. Jesus is God, and yet he does not exhaust God. There is also a father and a spirit who have enjoyed perfect, unbroken life together since forever past. Jesus is saying, because of my resurrection, I am ascending to heaven to be with them. But by faith, you're united to me. 
And so now that life that I am going to enjoy with the Father and the Spirit, it's yours. It's all yours. I've won it for you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And it's all right. Enjoy it anyway. It's yours. By my grace. Because I wanted to. Because I chose to. I've won it for you. And, and it is secure. How secure? It is so secure that your place within that perfect fellowship, that perfect eternal fellowship, your, your place will only be rescinded there when my resurrection is rescinded. That's how strong it is. That's how secure you are. So I'm going there. It's so secure that I'm going and I'm ascending. And I'm going to reign over you by my spirit to see to it that you get there. That you get there in the end. I will, I will sovereignly oversee every detail of your life from here on out so that you get there. He's an airtight savior. So then, what now? What next? I have to tell you, it is one of the most glorious moments of my life to feel that, to, to see the, the resurrected Lord and to feel this security and then to stand back and to be able to say, okay, what now, Lord? <laughs> to feel so secure in Christ, to be able to say that. What, what now, Lord? There's got to be something else now, right? And you, you know, it, it is an, another amazing detail here that, that Mary's beloved teacher is still leaving her soon. That hasn't changed. Her situation actually hasn't changed. He's going away for the rest of her life very soon. What has changed? What's changed is that the one that she was seeking was even greater than she could have ever imagined. A greater Savior than she could have ever imagined. All she needed to do was look up and see. The sight of Jesus, the Jesus who was there, liberated her to really live it freed her to live on his mission. A life of courage to fearlessly spend our, our few days telling this world this greatest news. To be a herald, to point the world to this Jesus. In him we're free. We are free. Free from having to, to distract ourselves from the realities of death. Free to look death straight in the eye straight in the eye, and then look over death's shoulder with the utmost of disrespect to death. Look over death's shoulder and say to our friends, our neighbors, the nurses at our deathbed, our friends, our world, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord to proclaim his resurrection we're free. And, and this life of mission is at the same time the happy life. The life of the greatest joy in this world. A life spent no longer trying to avoid the inevitable, but in proclaiming the incredible. It's 
happy because it is free, free because we're secure to live the way we were meant to live in courageous joy. This is life. This is living, man. This is it. This is the life Adam and Eve were designed to enjoy in the first place. Free, powerful, not in ourselves, but in the living, living Christ, in the risen Christ, in his life. This is real life. It's not an easy life. It's really unpredictable sometimes. There's suffering. Sometimes there's death. But it's an adventure. It's living. It's a life we were designed for from the beginning. Life to the full. Life to the full. This is liberated life. We're free because we can look forward to a day beyond death when we will sit with our brother without tears, without sin, without regret, without resentments, without fear, with all of our brothers and sisters around a long table and we will feast. We will feast in a great marriage supper that will double up as a great victory celebration, a victory celebration of our Savior over death for us. Do you want this life? Do you want this life? The wisdom for this life is simply Jesus Christ crucified and risen for you. Is he your wisdom? Is he your life? If you are not a follower of Christ, we, we want to see you at the feast. We want to see you at the feast. We want to share that glorious supper on that day with one father in one family. So, out of love, I implore you, come, believe for life. If you are his brother and sister, brother or sister, then just, <clears throat> just sit back for a moment and look up and see all that you have in him. A life to the full. And look forward to this day and what a day it will be. Believe and take heart, brother and sister. Take heart. Take courage. You're secure. You're free and you're empowered, empowered by his life to pursue the greatest joy you could possibly have in this life, a life that is spent as a herald proclaiming he is risen. Your life has come. It is the greatest joy because it is a life given away, a life given away and the joyful expectation that when we see him face to face, we will see that we gave nothing away, that we gained everything, that we lost nothing. Nothing. Because we have him. Life in him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise his name. Let's pray. <clears throat>
Father, Son, by your Spirit, would you continue to speak to us as we consider your word, as we sing of your great resurrection now, as we feast and as we talk later, would you continue to speak? Let your voice be heard in us. Let us hear your voice calling us and let us see you as you are, our risen King, our life. Thank you. Would you send us out of here on a trajectory of joy, a trajectory of proclaiming your name to our world? Would you free us for this, we pray. For your name, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.